Some of you have been sitting here for two weeks. Some of you for a bit less than a week. I'd like to speak tonight about the jewel of the Buddha's awakening, of his vision that freed him, that brought a sense of freedom and uh, complete wholeness uh, in his enlightenment, and that is the understanding of selflessness. Also like to speak about it in terms of respect that we might bring to ourselves in our practice. See if I can fit those two together for you. Begin with a story from tales of a magic monastery, mythical tales of a monastery where monks go when they are fed up with their own monastery. <laughs> I'm a monk myself, and the one question I really wanted to ask is, what is a monk? I could get no good answer at my home monastery, so I went off to the magic monastery and after a long and arduous journey, I arrived and asked. For the answer, I was got given a most peculiar question. Do you mean in the daytime or at night? Now, what could that mean? When I didn't answer further, he picked it up again. A monk, like everyone else, is a creature of expansion and contraction. During the day, he or she is contracted behind their cloister walls, dressed in a habit or robe like all the others, doing the routine things you expect a monk to do. But at night they expand. The walls cannot contain them. They move throughout the world and they touch the stars. Oh, I thought to myself, poetry. To bring him down to earth, I began to ask, well, during the day, in his real body. He said, wait, that's the difference between you and us. You people regularly assume that the contracted state is the real body. It is real in a sense, but here we tend to start from the other end, the expanded state. The daytime state we refer to as the body of fear, and whereas you tend to judge a monk by their decorum during the day. We tend to measure a monk by the number of persons they touch at night and the number of stars. We live in this strange world of expansion and contraction. You've been following your breath for a number of days. Your body opens and the breath moves in your body closes and the breath moves out. Your mind expands and contracts. Maybe you notice that. can get very small sometimes, identified and caught and reactive, and then it gets spacious and open and big like the sky. The heart, too, opens, closes, expands and contracts, sometimes tiny, sometimes again, contains greatness, wonderful things. To live 
is to live in this reality of expansion and contraction. And the practice that we do is to listen to, to sense with our attention, with care and respect, this whole process of expansion, contraction. Now there's a certain paradox that's inherent in this life, central to it, to which the Buddha spoke. And this is the paradox of self and no self. I remember my teacher Ajahn Chah at one point said a really astonishing thing for a great Buddhist teacher. He said one night when we were gathered in the monastery talking about Dharma, he said, you know, all this teaching about no self, it's not true. My ears perked up now. This is very interesting. He said, of course, all the stuff about self, that's not true either. Isn't that interesting? Because in Buddhism you hear the teachings about no self over and over again. What could he have meant by that? Each of those sets of words, self, no self, are concepts or ideas or words that we use in a very crude approximation, a pointing to some mystery of this process of life that's neither self nor no self. As Carol spoke of yesterday evening, the things come too closely together to be just sorrow or just joy. They're both together or just birth and death separately. They really both come together. In Japanese, one of the words for awareness is happy-sad. To be present, really present, is to connect with this mystery. Now, how does this manifest or show itself in the practice that we are doing? As we listen and pay attention, walking, sitting, noticing mindfully, we need to respect two different aspects of this process of being. One is the aspect of no self. And that comes as we listen and sense and feel our life as a changing, flowing, moving process. We open to it and sense that what was solid or I or mine, as we listen and feel directly without all the ideas that hold, hold it together like glue, when the mind and its ideas start to go away a bit, that it becomes much more dynamic and changing. There are many ways this selflessness shows itself to you. <laughs> Isn't that funny? The selflessness shows itself. One way is that whatever you sense cannot be possessed. You sense thoughts or feelings or sounds. You sense your own body. But can you really possess it? To possess it would mean you'd own it and it would do what you wanted. Doesn't work that way, does it? I mean, if you possessed your body, you could ask it to do many things. Don't get sick, stay well, do not age. Does it listen? You don't possess it. So one sense very deeply of anatta, of selflessness, is 
that experience moment to moment that we don't own or possess what arises. Hmm. Another way it shows itself to us is that it comes and goes by itself. The breath breathes itself. The thoughts think themselves. The pictures picture themselves. The sounds sound themselves. Hearing hears itself. Feelings feel themselves. They come. Do you ask happiness or sadness? Irritation? excitement, restlessness to come, doesn't it do it by itself? If you sense back today, didn't it all pretty much do it by itself? I mean, the best maybe you could do was haul this bag of bones, as it's called, around to have those experiences. So it's not possessable. It comes and goes by itself. Fantastic. It arises out of nothing, out of the void, and it goes back into nothing. We talked about this last retreat. What happened to today? It arose, did its little dance, and now it's just about dark and it's gone. Back there with the 1980s and the 1970s and 60s and the 18th century and the Romans and the Greeks and the pharaohs and so forth, it's disappeared, gone, just like your childhood. So you can sense in some way that it arises for a little time in a certain form, and then that form ends in a new form, replaces it one moment after another. As one pays attention in a different way in practice, not just sensing it coming and going of itself or arising out of this silent, empty void for a moment, or being unpossessable, Another way it's seen through our careful attention is a kind of dissolution of the sense of self. You sit and walk and pay very deep attention to the breath, sensations, and thoughts. And the more carefully you pay attention, like an electron microscope, everything you look at, one breath becomes 10 sensations, beginning, middle, and end, and then 100 little sensations one pain or sensation in the body, you feel into it deeply, and it has all these sparkles, and the whole body dissolves into just tingles and sparkles. And then thoughts come, and you sense them immediately, and they're just fragments of sounds and words. And the more deeply you look, the more it becomes like a music rather than something solid. Now, initially, this is not very easy. First, because it's taken to be solid, for so long, it's hard to see that deeply. And then when you do, there usually arises fear. Oh, wow, it's all falling apart. In fact, there isn't anything to stand on. It's like quicksand. At this point, at this level of vision, what's necessary in practice is simply to note, oh, quicksand, quicksand, falling apart, falling apart. It's a process of letting go into that kind of emptiness. And the more silent you get, the more things come apart, the more likely it is that very deep fear will arise in you. Very deep sense of loss will come also. The whole game at that point is just to say, oh, fear, that too arises. There's loss. And to see that is made of the same nothing 
that everything else is. It's a process of seeing and letting go all the different attempts to make something solid until it really opens of its own. Now there's another way you may see this selflessness. That's the sense of interdependence that we've spoken of, or codependence. That as you listen quietly, without a lot of thoughts and preconceptions, you will begin to notice that everything is related to everything else. It all arises codependently with what else is around us. There's the bell, and the hitting of the bell, and the sound. What is it that rings? Your ear, your mind, the bell, the stone, the between. Is there even such a thing as the between? Isn't it all of that together? Your mind, the ear, the between, the bell, the stone, this activity. And this is done because I went and prepared a talk and thought about that, and that's because I flew down here on a particular airline because the Wright brothers developed airplanes, <laughs> right? And Dingley May went to China to come back and build this center, or Tibet. And that's because the Buddhism went to Tibet in the ninth century, that he got turned on to it. And that's because of the Buddha's awakening, but that was because of his parents and all of the previous um, generations of cavemen and cave women and so forth, long before him, that everything is connected to everything else, and each arises according to causes. In fact, the Buddha said, if you could understand this sentence, you would get enlightened. All things arise due to conditions. One thing is the condition for the next, codependently. So you can sense that. Then there is no separate me. There's just the stuff doing its dance. Another way you might sense this emptiness is that it is all an appearance, a dream, a phantom, an echo. Let me read you something. Be cheerful, sir, or madam. Our revels now are ended. These, our actors, as I foretold you, were all spirits and are melted into air, into thin air. And, like the baseless fabric of this vision, the cloud-capped towers, the gorgeous palaces, the solemn temples, the great globe itself, yea, all which it inherit shall dissolve and, like this insubstantial pageant, faded, leave not a rack behind. We are such stuff as dreams are made on, and our little life is rounded with a sleep. That's from the great sutra of William Shakespeare. Isn't that wonderful? That's a sense he knew it, and you too have moments that you sense that. Insubstantial leave not a rack behind. We are such stuff as dreams are made on. 
You can sense that with life. It becomes space and form, and as you open, you can learn to swim in it in some way. What we took as a solid self, these five processes, my thoughts, my body, my feelings, in the midst of this, becomes instead living in a stream. So that is some of the understandings that you may look for in your practice of selflessness. To sense that requires attention and care, a listening in a deep, silent way, and a great deal of respect. What is this? What also needs respect is our self, is the development of our self, of our true self. Often in the sutras of the Buddha, he speaks about enlightenment as the development of seven factors or seven qualities, the development of mindfulness and investigation and energy and calm and concentration, and joy, or rapture, and equanimity. And you attain enlightenment through the development in yourself of these qualities. Hmm. Or the perfections of a Buddha over lifetimes, the, the perfections of patience, and compassion, and courage, and integrity. Over and over again, discovering these capacities of strength, and well-being, and calm, and ease in ourselves, developing, nourishing, bringing them to fruition. In fact, the factors of enlightenment, the development of these, are the most frequent description of enlightenment in the sutras, along with that other interesting description, the one who clings to nothing. So these two descriptions really are descriptions of self and no-self. The no-self, one who clings to nothing, attaches, holds to nothing. And then this other side, he or she who develops calm, equanimity, patience, boundless compassion, strength, integrity. And as you practice, you discover that this sense of self can grow in you, that you can nourish or uncover or evoke. May strength arise. May awareness arise. May compassion arise. May I feel loving-kindness. And with practice, these qualities grow stronger. So you develop yourself as you lose yourself. <coughs> now, how do these two fit together? Let's look at it a bit more. It's kind of mysterious, the development and the empty process that does itself. The friend... Uh, Vipassana teacher at Harvard, friend of ours, um, and psychologist named Jack Engler, who written quite a bit about this, said at one point in a kind of summary of his work, you must be somebody before you can be nobody. And so his research led him to see that you have to have a sense of self before you can lose it. But that's kind of a shorthand and a bit too linear to describe the actual process in meditation. It doesn't work quite that simply. In fact, both opening to no self and the development of self or the discovery of true self are 
two parallel developments in our spiritual life, both being emptier and fuller as a kind of spiral that happens over and over again. It's not just that you get to be a strong personality and you're strong enough then to die on your cushion and have a spiritual awakening of selflessness and then you're a strong, empty person or something like that. It doesn't work that way. In fact, sometimes it happens backwards. I know some people who practiced who had profound experiences of selflessness, really deep and genuine ones, and then didn't know what to do with it. And it took them years to kind of figure out how from that place to go back in the world and live, even though those experiences were genuine. I even met, pe met people when I worked in psychiatric wards who I sensed had very deep, genuine experiences of selflessness, but just didn't know what to do with it. Now, my own practice, if I may share a bit of that with you, has been interesting in this regard. When I first began to practice, I wanted to become wise, to understand. There was some ego in that, I'll say. <laughs> Quite a bit, as a matter of fact. Become a wise person. And I wanted to get enlightened to see what that was about, if nothing else, so I could tell other people, you know. And I did it through my mind through mind combined with strong willpower. And I would sit for hours and not move and walk and do very intensive practice and concentrate, focus my mind until I could dissolve this whole body. You know, any place I looked, my concentration was strong enough. It would just break apart into like atoms, kalapas it's called in Sanskrit. Nothing was solid and there was this great sense of emptiness and deep insights into that which arose. But they weren't very well integrated, I discovered. And when I came back from doing long periods of practice like that, and kind of came down from that level of being particles back into my old body and personality, it was more or less as I had left it. <laughs> Which was a problem. I had tried to do it just with my mind, and I spent 10 years doing that with a fair success and a lot of interest. I was also supported in that because Buddhism in Asia and the cultures where I lived are not ones that, in those Buddhism, in, particularly in South and Southeast Asia, um, in which practice meditation is taught so much in an integrated way. It's much more you go to a monastery, you renounce the world, you leave it behind, and feelings and body are quite unimportant. Just what you see is what matters. So the first level was just vision. Well, I had vision far out, but then what? I discovered on returning that being in an intimate relationship or trying to work in the world, trying to relate to other human beings that I was very much out of touch with my feelings. And so after 10 years of working to see clearly, I spent another 10 years learning how to feel. A couple, few years initially in therapy, some thousands of dollars, just learning how to cry. Now, some of you do that for free here. I admire <laughs> you. you know? 
And the whole sense of my values in practice changed quite dramatically from wanting to see and know. Instead, something shifted where if I were asked what I practiced for, what I most deeply wanted, it was to be able to love well. It didn't matter how much I saw, or maybe it was based that I had seen a lot, and that was wonderful, but it wasn't enough. What I really wanted was to learn how to love quite fully in this life. So 10 years working with my mind, 10 years working with my heart, and learning to feel some, getting better at that. Then what's come is I realize that I don't live in my body so well. I'm kind of moving down, as you can sense. <laughs> and this next 10 years, I've started on this, is really to learn to live in my body and to be it. First is to see it, and then is to feel. And finally, not just to love well, but to be that which I, which I know, to embody that love or that wisdom, to have them actually be what is here. If you just do it in the mind, my own experience is that it's not really integrated. You can have realizations, and they're powerful. But they tend to become idealistic. Or if you live in them, it's as if your mind is split off from the rest of your life and the world. It becomes dualistic. And the world is too painful or too fearful. It's samsaric, it's dukkha, it's terrible if you do it just in the mind. And there becomes this split between the mind and the body, the mind and the heart. And that very split is what has caused so much suffering in our world today, this week for Earth Day. It's because people can sit at a computer, and it's quite interesting to play war games and imagine um, warhead-to-kill ratios and appropriate targeting, you know? and how many bogeys you can shot down, shoot down, and how you get the MIRV missiles on the other side to, di to disintegrate with your weapons and so forth. It's like a video game parlor. And if you don't realize it's babies, and old people, and women, and men, and trees, and chipmunks, and all these things that are alive, it's actually interesting, because it's from here up. I knew some bomber pilots during the Vietnam War who did their practice that way. They go up in a B-52, and it was all very mechanical. You understand that separation? There was a samurai who came into a Zen master at one point, and he said, kind of boasting, he said, the whole world is empty. It's all emptiness. You know how the Zen masters always answer. Zen master said, ha! Well, you know of this. You're a kind of dirty old samurai and threw something at him. And the samurai, of course, drew his sword, was really insulted, and you an, an insult in Japan is the cost of your life. And the Zen master just looked over and he said, emptiness is quick to show its temper, isn't it? <laughs> so my own practice has actually been a movement from the mind, from seeing, from awakening, to feeling, and trying to learn practice as a way of connecting with all of the heart and the emotional life. And finally, to inhabit and become that. Because I, I could observe my body, I do walking meditation, breath, I could put my attention anywhere 
very well in this knee there's this pain and this pressure and all these elements happening but it's as if I used it or observed it rather than inhabited it if that makes some sense to you so for me practice has been a process of gradual reclamation as our practice deepens there is a process of opening to selflessness and to self both and what we initially confront are two delusions that need to be undone or disentangled the first is the delusion of a solid self so we'll go back to that again for a moment the Buddha said in the sutras all is voidness I go on alms round I eat my food I live in the forest I wear my robes it's all void and empty we tend to see ourselves as separate and solid to sense ourselves to know ourselves to feel ourselves in this fixedness there's a kind of glue which is a image we hold of ourselves beliefs some view of our self being a certain way and moving through time and space what the Buddha discovered was that these processes of the five processes of body feelings memories and perceptions all the thoughts and reactions and the consciousness which knows them have no ownership are unpossessable that it's not our eyes or ears or tongue or nose or body or mind there is no one no past no future and that there's just this open space of the present certain practices can be done in different yogic traditions and Buddhist traditions where you simply ask who am I over and over again who am I well I'm not this body okay I can get to that on a good day um, I'm not these feelings I'm not these thoughts well I'm these plans and you might answer over and over and you don't have to do it for very long before you exhaust all that set of images of yourself and then who am I becomes woo this big open space that's nothing and everything this mystical present in which all time is here and all possibilities are present right now it's all here all connected there are at least 100 billion galaxies in this universe each of a hundred billion stars each star illuminates an uncounted number of planets each of which may support inconceivable forms of life from most points of view the green earth is smaller than an electron all this is happening within your mind can you sense that that there's all of that presumably out there and yet it's all within your mind these are real experiences of selflessness so one of the delusions is to undo the sense of solidity and the more carefully we pay attention the more it shows itself in all those ways of which I've spoken the other delusion that's also important to know and honor in practice 
is the undoing or the untangling of the false or deficient sense of self. And this is where we hold a great deal of our suffering. We often hear, particularly the wounded, lonely, difficult parts of ourselves, hear the teachings of no self. And I've seen it often. People will come and say, yeah, that's me. I've experienced that a long time. Nothing has meaning. There's no self here. But that's not the no self of empty space that contains all things. That's the self of negative self-image, of deficiency. I'm nothing. I'm terrible. I'm a weak, shameful, ugly, unimportant person. And that happens to a lot of people in our culture. We are a culture that's lost the art and the, the deep ability to nurture human beings as children very well. And so there are many, many of us in this new... There isn't even nuclear families anymore. There's half a nuclear family. The majority of kids in the school where I teach, we have a cooperative school for Caroline. I teach once or twice a month. All the parents take turns. Um, majority of the kids live with one parent or the other. I mean, it's gotten really sad. And so we don't even know it's not handed down as it was in old cultures and villages, how to hold children, how to bond with them, how to get them to have a sense of self and well-being and wholeness. And all these people grow up, not all but many, nuclear families, God, with senses of deficiency or worse than that, of abuse, senses of meaninglessness, it happens for lots of us, for lots of men, even worse for women in this culture, the way it's been. Men are supposed to at least grow up and do something, but there's a part of the way it's been handed down in a patriarchal society, which many women grow up and they feel that there isn't much meaningful for them to do, really. And so we come to be an adult in our adult costume, but we're really adult children in some way. And what functions in there is very low self-esteem and a deep sense of unworthiness, which is our sense of self. Anybody recognize that in this room? Oh, no self, that's me, right. And so there's this confusion of no self with negative self with the inner critic, with how much we hate ourselves, with our unworthiness, with our disgust with this body. I don't know how many people I've seen in interviews or in therapy who hate being in a human body and hate their man's body, don't like being a man, or hate their women's body, to have a body with breasts and a vagina or a penis. Ugh, disgusting. It's true. It's terrifying or frightening to people. So when you start to practice, oh, here, here it is, Jules Pfeiffer. 
He says, I grew up to have my father's looks, my father's speech patterns, my father's posture, my father's walk, my father's opinions, and my mother's contempt for my father. <laughs> And in that is sorrow and grief and rage and, and shame that's very, very deep. So when we actually start to practice, we encounter what I like to call the Freudian layer. People get scared and think that's who they are. It's only a layer, but it's there, all right. It's that stuff. Now, if you teach just no self, you could say, well, that's not who you are. None of that's who you are. But what happens is, if you say no self to all that, then you run away to this realm of, well, there's no self. But as soon as you come back and have to meet another person or work in the world of form, the self that you put right back on again is this shameful or worthless or frightened or, or un unworthy self. You understand? You can't just no self it away. It doesn't work. What you have to do is discover some new capacities of self as a man on this earth in a man's body, as a woman on this earth in a woman's body. Your true nature, your Buddha nature, as a male or a female. And that's quite wonderful. But to do it, you can't know self the way you have to go down right into that stuff with your attention into that stash of unworthiness that you don't tell anybody, but everybody else carries around like you. The first thing you have to do is pay attention and see it and hear it and be willing to listen to it. There's a beautiful poem by Wendell Berry about meditation where he says he goes out into the wilderness, into those silent places, and puts all of his work aside, just lets it rest like the cattle in the fields, all his tasks. And then what he is afraid of comes, and he listens to it, and it sings a song. And he says, it sings its song, and as it sings, it becomes less afraid of me, and I become less afraid of it. You understand that? It's a beautiful poem. The first step in this part about self is that we have to have, or develop in ourselves, this capacity to sit and let these things that we've been so frightened of come and tell their stories sometimes. And then as we listen, a second thing is required, which is a very deep forgiveness or compassion or loving kindness. They're really all the same words, that we touch that creature that has frightened us or we've been so frightened of it, that frightened despicable child in there, or whatever it is, that we don't put anything out of our heart, that we take that, too, into our awareness with loving-kindness. We listen to its story. We receive it as a creature of ours. And through accepting it and opening, we go through the middle of it and discover its opposite. 
There's a secret in working with oneself. If loneliness comes and it's very, very deep and you run away for your whole life because you were abandoned when you were one or three or in past lives or God knows how many times, you don't even know. It's countless, but it comes. And that's your identity. I'm a lonely person. And you let it tell its story and you touch it with compassionate attention. You hold it like a child with your caring. You don't put it out of your heart. And you sense into it loneliness at some point when it's given all the space it wants turns into silence and aloneness, which is very different. Instead of being lonely, there's this sense of connectedness with everything. You are alone and connected. Its opposite shows itself. Or sometimes you find tremendous aggression and trying to be strong and overpower things, mostly because you're terrified, like everybody else. And you feel that pattern of this aggression and, and uh, effort and trying to be strong that's happened over and over from the sense of deficiency. Well, maybe you'll do that. And first you let it tell its story. I'm going to be Superman. I'll get strong enough for Supergirl or whatever it is. And you hear all that. And you just listen to it till you're less afraid of it. And you touch it with compassion. And you let it open. And as it opens through its own emptiness, it opens and dissolves, and there comes instead a sense of a kind of groundedness or strength that's not that you're trying to overpower or overcome something, but just the strength of sitting here on your cushion on this earth. There's an inherent strength in being that you've been looking for all this time, and it has nothing to do with that old identity. It's been here all the time. Or you touch places of meaninglessness. And you pay attention and you accept that profound meaninglessness. It is meaningless on one level. And you feel the pain and the ache of that meaninglessness to its depth, to the right, to the center. You allow it with your attention. And then out of it is born the sense of wonder and beauty, creativity. In the interviews that we do, we often see these two difficult processes happening in people. And they're really the same process, they're just different aspects of it. Because both of them involve an opening or a shift of our identity. Through a deeper and deeper attention, there comes an opening to the formless, an ease, seeing that we possess nothing, that there's space, that it's ungraspable, it becomes silent. And people become more comfortable in that. They get afraid, and they start to think and worry, and then they become a little easier with it. It's okay to feel this selflessness. Through deepening attention and careful listening and opening, there also comes a discovery in form. Both of these take a lot of respect and care. That all the old sorrows and all the old identities, the deficiency, all the negative stuff that we held is not who we are. And we start to see a shifting of identity or a shedding, a letting go, and there's a sense of sufficiency and purity and radiance and well-being and a kind of uniqueness about us that arises whenever those are abandoned and let go of. 
There's a coming together, a wedding of the universal and the personal. Hmm. I had an experience at the end of a retreat one time. It was a long retreat. I'd done a lot of interviews. I was a bit tired, but it was a wonderful retreat. I was in a great space and I was happy for people. The last couple of days there tend to be many, many interviews and long ones. It's like the last things that people really need to talk about come up and, and so there's a kind of intensity to those last days. And I was doing a lot of metta that retreat and I felt a lot of compassion and love, connectedness with people. I went back home and I was feeling that. Um, and I went, I go, and I work for a lot of years with a kind of breath process that's a, a sort of spiritually oriented therapy. I went and I was breathing, working with this person that I work with. Wonderful work. And I was describing the retreat and the state of my heart and this kind of compassion and sense of connectedness. And as I lay there and I just breathed, this kind of light, all of a sudden, very deep inside my heart, it's as if something cracked open and a whole other door opened and a different color came instead of this white color that was there. This very deep, beautiful red and gold came. And out of it, I sensed the love that I have for my daughter and my wife and my three brothers whom I love a lot, my parents and the garden that we planted that year. And it was a shift. It was a very visible tangible shift from a universal kind of love for all beings to the most personal immediate, my five-year-old girl, my wife, the things we planted in the garden, my home, my neighborhood. And it was a wonderful kind of love, really extraordinary. Sometimes we think in the beginning of spiritual practice when we try to do it just with our mind, that it means removing ourselves from the world. And that's false. Might do that for a time, but that's not freedom. The freedom of the Buddha is to be able to enter any realm and ent any domain to inhabit it all and bring to it a sense of emptiness. To heal the split of mind and body, of self and no self, we are called upon in our practice and our lives to bring respect and tenderness and full attention to self and no self alike and to discover a very interesting thing, that they're not different, that form is emptiness, that self is selfless. Hmm. You don't get this with your mind. If you didn't understand that, don't worry, it's not your mind that will help you. <laughs> My teacher Nisargadat, the old Bidi Baba, he used to say, the mind creates the abyss and the heart crosses it. He says, wisdom says that I am nothing and love says that I am everything. Between these two, my life moves. There's a knowing that we are nothing and everything. Form is emptiness. There comes a deepening sense of emptiness that we don't possess, that it's tentative, that it's always changing. And yet within that, there comes a sense of wholeness and integrity and well-being and a deepening capacity to love, to commit, 
to touch, to enter into relationship in a whole and wise and complete way from moment to moment in this changing world. Dogen, Zen Master Dogen says, true awareness is the same thing as intimacy. To be awakened is to be intimate with all things, is his phrase. Isn't that interesting? It's not to move away from it, to bring your attention and your heart and your body all together so fully that you are there being born again into each moment. This is a long work. It's a work of a lifetime for most of us to love, to respect, to open to this body, this life, this earth. But you're here. I mean, you're not here in order to not be here. I mean, at least while you're in this body, you're here. You might as well learn. You might as well enter this dance. I think when I speak in these ways of a very inspiring teacher for me, His Holiness Karmapa, who, like the Dalai Lama, is one of the heads of the Tibetan lineages. And he does this ceremony at one point, one of his great ceremonies, which is to put on this crown that he's had for the last 12 lifetimes and, you know, a thousand years of incarnations. And in placing this crown on his head to manifest himself as the Bodhisattva of Avalokiteshvara, the Bodhisattva of infinite mercy and compassion, which is usually pictured with a thousand arms, each extending compassion. And the teachings are that whatever realm there arises, and there arises all these realms, men's bodies, women's bodies, babies, old people, all the realms of creatures, realms seen and unseen, there the bodhisattva of infinite compassion arises and extends compassion in an inexhaustible way. And when you're with Karmapa, you sense, hey, maybe this guy actually could do it, and this extraordinary quality. One of the things that's most extraordinary about him is that if you have the opportunity to speak with him and just sit in front of him, it's not that it's all just universal, but when you sit and you speak with him, it's as if he really cares about you. He really listens and pays attention as if you are a very important person to him in his life. Isn't that a wonderful thing to meet people who listen to you in that way? He just happens to do it in every moment for every being. That's where that intimacy, self and no self. How could a bodhisattva, how could we manifest in all these realms with compassion? Well, you're not going to do it with your negative self. That's clear, the sense of deficiency. That's not going to do it. But when that's let go of, when it's not trying to do it from some small sense of self, then it does itself. That's part of the joy of selflessness, is that as we become selfless, much greater forces of what life is move through us. Because it's the Dharma that moves all things and not us. And so the bodhisattva enters every realm, and the dharma heals. It's actually real easy. Well, <laughs> take some practice.
When I was with Nisargadat Maharaj, who was this Hindu guru and a teacher of Advaita Vedanta in the tradition of Ramana Maharshi, wonderful teacher, great sense of space and love both from him. One of the stories that I've told often but will repeat this evening happened at that time that a young man came to one of our daily meditations and dialogues. He would have dialogue with people, mostly asking you who you were. You come in, if, if he'd not seen you before, he'd say, oh, sit down in front of me. Where are you coming from? And you could answer whatever way you dared. You know, I came from New York was the easy answer. There's no coming and going. I didn't come from anywhere. What? Hmm. He would look at you. Do you really understand that? Anyway, one day, a young man came in, and he asked a couple of spiritual questions, and then he left, got a couple answers, disappeared, didn't return again, seemed to be wandering around India doing other things. And someone said, Maharaj, what's going to happen to this guy? I mean, he didn't come, and he doesn't have the kind of genuineness and steadfastness and ardor that it seems practice takes. Um, is there any hope for him? And Nisargadot laughed. He said, hope for him. He said, it's too late, too late. Said, what do you mean it's too late? He said, well, just the fact that this man walked up the steps to this apartment and came in here and asked those questions about spiritual life or whatever means that that part of him who knows who he really is has started to wake up. And even if he goes out and does a thousand difficult and different things where he forgets it. That started to awaken, and it's too late for him to, maybe not even in this lifetime, but because it started to awaken, sooner or later, he too will come back to know what he really is or who he truly is. And so T.S. Eliot ends his quartets, the end of his life of poetry, with the lines from Julian of Norwich, where it says, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. It's her line. It's a very mysterious thing to be alive as a human being. And to sit on a retreat and not be so busy is to be able to listen to that mystery. We ask you to stay with it moment to moment, not to distract yourself so much. We try to encourage you when the pains and the, the small self-images and the old ways you've held have come, to meet that with awareness and compassion and let that move through you as it needs to so you can open to even deeper senses of yourself. And those deeper senses of yourself are also deeper senses of no self. And that's the best I can do tonight. Thank you. Let's sit for a moment. I'm left with a little concern after this talk that somehow it might be interpreted that you have to rush around and get body work and therapy and fix your old negative self-images and then do some questioning of who am I and kind of do it 
consciously in all these pieces. Fortunately, it knows how to do it itself. All that you need to do is to keep coming back to the present and what needs to open in you will. You can really trust that. What needs to open in the feeling body, in the physical body, in the mind, the things that are held. So your work is very simple. It's to become present over and over and make the space that allows that without possessing all those different identities until the space shows itself. And to bring enough intimacy and tenderness and compassion so that you can enter fully each of those moments to really connect with each as it opens. That's all. It will do it just fine. All you have to do is be here for it. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.